Well, listen, let's get right into this because how much time do we have, by the way, Terry? What's uh, what's your schedule like today? Yeah, it's pretty open. Yeah, we got like 20 Excellent. minutes, 30 minutes. We'll be good. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, perfect. Because awesome. there's so much to, uh, to talk about with you. In fact, uh, let me get started with this one. It's the exit stage left. And we, we talked about it on the phone. This is a show that I went to. I was in the audience. I saw Max Webster and I saw uh, Rush. You took the tape back to uh, Morin Heights and you fixed it up a little bit. Talk to me about recording that and capturing the band live because they weren't happy with the first live album. So they they wanted to sort of make this one perfect, I guess. Uh, yeah, OK. We um, <clears throat> it was recorded in a number of different cities, um, Ottawa, Vancouver, Toronto. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Ireland too, wasn't it, or somewhere in Scotland, or we did some stuff in in, in uh, the UK. We did Glasgow right. and London, but I'm I'm not I don't remember how much of that we actually used for the uh, for that particular album. It's a long time ago. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> I didn't um, make any notes. <laughs> yeah. So so then, how much of it is is fixed in post production? Oh, not a whole lot, as I remember. Right. We were very careful to choose. I mean, we had a lot of material to choose from, a lot of nights that were recorded. So went through it all, and uh, we chose all the best takes. Yeah. Hmm. I want to. Uh, so I'm wearing my Lay Studio Morin Heights shirt, which is kind of hilarious because um, at the radio station, our main <laughs> broadcast engineer, Kim Bickerdyke, worked on a session with you guys in 1978 and he was telling me the story how on the song natural science it was you and kim you went down to the water and you both were recording yourselves playing with the paddles getting the paddling sound on the song and he was like put on natural science so we we're listening to it and uh, we we're listening to the songs and he was like right there that that loud splash that's me that's me on the paddles right there <laughs> oh my goodness I, you know so many of these little details just sort of get dare i say washed away <laughs> yeah exactly right but I, I thought it was hilarious i was like damn like you know there's just so many cool little things like that that happen on records that people aren't necessarily aware of and then here i am you know almost 40 years later at the radio station a you know 27 year old kid and the engineer's like that's me playing the paddles on the rush album like <laughs> wow i would have to go back and revisit that to even clarify Think about it, yeah. So he gave me the shirts. So he's like, "Oh, you got to mention that to Terry." I doubt he'd remember, but anyways, we were there and we did that. Oh, so we had some great times at the studio. It was beautiful. What was it about working at Lay Studio that just made it so integral to the process of recording those records at the time? Well, it was um, you could see the daylight because the studio had big windows, as you probably remember from the videos. Yeah. And the control room too had windows that opened up to the uh, outside. So uh, you you could watch the day go by. It was quite different from working in a in a studio that was in a, you know, like a, a basement or, um, you know, completely enclosed, which most studios are still, you know, to this day. Yeah, super isolated. You're in the middle of, uh, I know a lot of studios now, they're almost like in the middle of corporate buildings with no windows around at all. 
Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it made a huge difference to the dynamic of the day, you know, because you, you, you knew where you were during the day, as opposed to, you know, I mean, I can remember being in some studios when I would come out at like five o'clock in the morning, and go, oh, my God, five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, you have no idea how time flies by. Right. Uh, you know, moving pictures is celebrating the 40th anniversary of this year. Yeah. And I was reading that the band, you know, you guys went into the studio and you just got the big, you know, like 40 track console. I don't know if it was like an SSL or something like that. And like the technology was just so new at the time that it even took you guys some time to get used to it. Well, to a degree, yeah, certainly right. from a mixing standpoint for me, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it took me a little while to get my head around it. But um the basic the recording of the album was was done you know the way we would normally do it we were using neve strips or small neve console to get the front end on the uh, for the drums and uh, so nothing really changed there from mm -hmm. a production standpoint sonically though you know going into engineer the record you did you have a, a template in like sound in your mind? Like, okay, we need to use the Neve strips. We need to use, you know, a U47 on the, the kick or a FET 47. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, certain microphones that I love to use and, and the Neve strips was a really important part of that fatness in the drum sound. And yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. When you're recording those drums and capturing those guitar tones and vocals, I've always been curious about this. How much say does the band have in the sound of the record? compared to the producer. Say you want like a really fat snare sound. Are you and Neil gonna have a discussion in the studio? Like, nah, I don't want a ton of reverb on my snare or I don't want my drums to be gated reverb and all these things. Well, neither of those things did we do, but mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, but we talk about, you know, like which snare to use and, you know, and how, what, what kind of sticks, you know, whether you use the butt end of the stick or the, you know, the, uh, the regular the grip and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, stuff like that would be talked about. But generally speaking, he always had a really good handle on where he was going with things. So he'd always give me the best sounds and then it would be a question of, can we make it better? You know, right. I mean, he had a great sounding kit. He had great, a great drum tech uh, on hand all the time. So, you know, heads were changed and everything was like tip top. It was like having a drum tech on a, on a recording session makes so much difference. Yeah. Was there ever an instance where you're sitting there, you're like, you know, what? I think that clear head might be a little too dull and they just give you a look like, eh. <laughs> uh, well, no, we talked about heads, but I mean, he had, you know, he, he had preferences that he liked to use and, and those things change from, you know, as you go through recording techniques, those things change over the years and different heads were coming up, you right. know, like, uh, you know, oil, double headed, double skin yeah. with oil between them and, you know, or single heads and clear bottoms and frosted tops, you know, so... Yeah, there's all kinds of different combinations, but each drummer will come up with something that is gives them the sound that they want. Right. Because that record, I mean, everybody still to this day, between Tom Sawyer, and <coughs> YYZ, and Limelight, I mean, it's like th those drum sounds are iconic now that Neil's gone. And like, even just listening to the record, like, I'm just curious, you know, just reading up on the record and just being a fan for all these years, the, the songwriting process for the record, it was it was mostly done on the road and then you did demos, and then you went in to record the actual record? 
Basically, yeah. They used to record their sound checks. So during sound check, they'd be jamming on riffs and, and ideas that they were thinking about and working on. And, uh, and then that would get written into tunes and then we'd go and do demos. Right. So you're yeah. not sitting there in the studio kind of like Mutt Lang and picking out like riffs like, oh, you heard the riff for Limelight. Like, oh, that could be a huge hit. Let's hold on to that riff or... Like, did the, the band already came in with the songs or? Yeah, at that stage, yes. I mean, when we first when we first started working together back around Fly By Night, um, then certainly there were things that we would work on a tune. They'd be like, you know what? We need something else for the bridge. The bridge isn't really happening. Let's come. I mean, you know, Alex or Ged would say, well, what about that thing we were working on when we were on the road in, you know, Timbuktu and uh, <laughs> and and we'd try it and then we'd make some changes and then we'd put it into the tune and sure enough hey that's much better than what we had so let's go with this so right. yeah but by the time we got to moving pictures it was much more set before we went in so everybody knew what their role was in terms of parts to lay the tracks let me take you just real uh, real quick back to the beginning. You start off with Mo Kaufman, who's a flautist, and then eventually you do Rush, and then eventually you do Voivod. Um, how did you get into production? Do, do you, are you a, a musician that just couldn't get a deal and you said, I'm going to produce? Or were you always like, well, I really am interested in the sounds and how we get the sounds. How does the career start and how do you go from a flautist to a progressive to basically death metal i mean that's quite death a metal band it's, well, quite, a, it's quite a leap although yeah incidentally the angel rat yeah has just been remastered by peter moore oh wow and it sounds absolutely stunning i was so thrilled when i heard it oh wow i never heard it sound that good you know we never never quite got it to, to sound that good and cds were you know fairly new in those days so. mm -hmm. now was it remastered or remixed it's remastered. It wasn't remixed. It's okay. my original mix, mm. but it's remastered and for vinyl and CD, and it sounds fantastic. It sounds great. So, okay, so how, that, that I'm going to have to check out. Yeah. But how do you get into production? Because a lot of times you talk to a producer and they go, oh, you know, I'm a failed musician, and but I was hanging around the studio and I became a, and I gave my opinion and they said, oh, I like that opinion. So, No, that wasn't the way it happened Okay. Me. I mean, I started working in the studio when I was like, 18, 17 and a half, 18. And, but I started working with some amazing people right off the bat, like Ginger Baker and The Who and, you know, right. like all these different musicians who had a huge influence on what I was doing. And, uh, but I was an engineer and I was tape hopping originally and then engineering and then came to Toronto in 69 and with Doug Riley and started Toronto Sound. And mm. uh, so I was still an engineer, basically, and that's my background. I mean, I played piano when I was a kid, but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not musically inclined in that way. So mm. I, I never became a musician. So you really enjoyed being on the floor and moving those microphones around and turning the knobs and... Yeah, and, and arranging tunes and, you know, and recording bands and getting sounds and all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. 
Definitely. But one day I was working with um, I was working with a band in Toronto and I was putting so much energy into the production of this track as the engineer. I just went, you know what? I got to stop doing this. I got to start being a producer. This is crazy. I'm giving so much away as an engineer. And, I'm, you know, and by the time you've paid all your expenses, the studio was breaking even over a year. So um, I started producing. And you were able to charge more. Well, at that stage, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't a lot. But it was, it was just the fact of building a career. You know, I got my name on the record as a producer, which was fair. And, mm -hmm. and one thing led to another. And hey. So then go. talk to me just real quick about establishing that rush sound when we go back to Fly By Night, because the band's out on the tour with Kiss, you know, they're touring with Kiss and they're opening and they're, they're working it. They're in a van and they're working it. Uh, talk to me about that sound. Did they bring that to you? Did you help create it? You know, when you get to Fly By Night, how much is, you know, when you talk about Mutt Lang, Mutt Lang albums are, 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 are Mutt and Bob Ezrin albums are Bob. Is Fly By Night a Terry record? <laughs> well, I mean, at that time, yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I do have, <clears throat> excuse me, I do, I do have a sort of a, a signature way of doing things, I think, to a large degree. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, there was a, a lot of things on that record that were, you know, things I wanted to hear and wanted to have performance wise, you know, I think, and, and we managed to pull it together. Can yeah. I say it's uh, those records were done in a very short space of time. So, you know, they, uh, the, the, there's a lot of me on there because a lot of decisions were made really quickly and I was engineering and mixing. So, right. Yeah. So to go back to talking about writing the songs on the road and stuff for Rush, it's like by the time they got into the studio, they were already well rehearsed and they had the songs down pat. Was that a budget conscious decision for bands at the time to have been really rehearsed written everything and then they get into the studio and use as little time as possible because now it's like you know people could take three four years to make an album because they're recording in their house and stuff and they have all the technology but was it really about the budget at the time that made bands record these things just so quickly no i don't i i mean budget had something to do with it yeah but um it, that, that wasn't the modus operandi at that point um they would they didn't have a lot of time hmm. because they were on the road all the time. So when they came into the studio, they, we were given, you know, a couple of weeks for the for fly by night. I think it was two weeks from start to finish. But we worked, hmm. you know, diligently. We worked long hours and we worked, worked very efficiently and got it done. Right. You just talked about um, the remastering of that album and stuff. And just looking back at all the records, I mean, Bob Ludwig had a big play you know, in the mastering world at the time. Talk about how important it was to have Bob Ludwig master an album for you. It was very important because he 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 had magic fingers and great ears, you know. He, he knew exactly what to do and how to get the best onto the vinyl. And in those days, it was, was no easy task. So, yeah, it was important to have him do it. It, it now, really was. Yeah, but talking about the mastering, it's like how, once it comes off the board, to the mix, to the master. How different does it sound from the mix of the record to the mastered version of it? 
Well, that depends on the mix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to be really honest with you. I mean, nowadays, um, the requirements for mixes is much more stringent for somebody like myself. When I send a mix out to somebody, they expect it to sound like the finished record. Right. Back in the days of, of doing the earlier you know, work with Rush, I mean, I'd get it to a point where I was happy with the mix, but Bob would always put the icing on the cake. And mm -hmm. so when he mastered, um, he would make it sound that much better. Bob was yeah yeah. Do Bob you think was... master? Do you think mastering is a bit of a lost art form now in these days? Well, um, not really. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, Peter Moore just did my uh, remastered the mix of Voivod, and mm. did an incredible job. I mean, it sounds absolutely stunning. So no, it's not a lost art. Yeah. Um, but like everything today, there's a million ways of skinning a cat. You know, you can send your, you can send your tape in and have it mastered by an AI system, um, and get it back in 20 minutes, and it's right. mastered, it's done. And in right. some cases, people are totally happy with it. I haven't actually tried it because, <clears throat> you know, I like to work with somebody who really knows what they're doing and can right. make you know, subtle changes to stuff that I've spent months working on. <laughs> I don't want to have it mastered in 10 minutes by well, yeah. computer. Well, that's it. You know, it's like I, I read this classic interview with Mike Shipley and they were talking about this Maroon 5 record that Mutt Lang had produced. And they, you know, they spent like a week on a mix and like, oh, it sounded great. They had this fat bottom end carved out. It was amazing. And then they shipped it off to Universal and the in-house mastering guy just butchered it. And they, it was so bad that they tried to recall the record and everything. And that's when I started to really think about mastering. Yeah. And, you know, looking at all the stuff that's just brick walled now. I mean, like I'm in top 40 radio and we get these singles off DMDS every day. And it's just like brick wall the whole way <laughs> oh, through. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's the new way to go. Um. I just want to go quickly back to, to Fly By Night because before that, the band had John Rudsey in the band uh, as the drummer. Did you ever see the band with John? Had you worked at all with John before the change? And yeah, when... I, did. I produced okay. uh, two or three tunes on their first album. Oh, okay, because the, yeah. the, the, the credits say way. Rush. It never says Terry Brown on that first record. Uh, well, I was hired as an engineer. I gotcha. basically mixed the records. Oh, that's right. That's but right. I cut three tunes with them, as I remember. Finding My Way was one of them. Right. And, uh, and that's what made me fall in love with the band. I just was so blown away by the, the way they sounded. So me that... And Alex. And John was was more than a good drummer at that point in that for that album. Right. But, um, certainly when Neil came along on Fly By Night, it was like a huge change up. Yes, yeah, right. yeah. So, so just quickly talk to me about that impression. I mean, you, they they say we're going to get this new guy. Neil comes in, and of course, at that point, he's not Neil. He's not Neil that we know. He's just the the new guy. Do you listen to him and go, "Oof, okay, we have possibilities." This oh, guy, yeah. okay, he was amazing back then. I mean, he he had uh, you know done his homework and was a great player back even back then. And he played in a lot of other bands, progressive bands, and you know he 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 done his due diligence. 
in, in, yeah, he, he was great. And, and it obviously was a game changer for the band. I mean, it just oh, took yeah, what they, yeah. not yeah. least of all from a lyrical standpoint, because the, you know, the style of writing just changed dramatically. Hmm. So in terms of, of producing them, did that just make life a lot easier? You could just go, Hey, we got Neil well, here. I, um, easier and harder. Right. I mean, he had a lot more drums. He was a lot more technical and uh, a lot of nuance that needed to be brought out. And uh, so there was was it was quite a quite a, a challenge. As, well, okay. an, as an engineer, is that is that a task when you're working with that many drums and that much sound going on and trying to fit it all into a mix? Is that is that a well, task? It is if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, if you know, if you've got the experience, it's it's not that difficult. It's just a question of doing it properly. But and I mean, even I've I've been working on some stuff recently that's got three times as many drums on it as Neil had. So I mean, it's like it's, it just doesn't stop. You know, it just keeps getting more. You mean more. you're still recording real drums? You're not using addictive drums, Terry? What is this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I uh, still love drums. <laughs> yeah. I, you but, I mean, look, you look at a picture of Terry Bozio, for instance, sitting in front of some of his kids. It's hard to count the number of drums. Yeah. There are so many. It really is. Yeah. You even look at like Mike Mangini in Dream Theater and like his kids, yeah. like it's over here and then you're up here. It's like. <laughs> but, but when you're recording, Neil, at, at any point, you just say, hey, Neil, just get a hi-hat and a snare and let's, let's just make it simple. Or was that sort of intricate drum sound just so essential to what they did that you just had to have it? Yeah, I think you'd have a hard time cutting some of those tracks with a kick and snare. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I had, and maybe one crash. I mean, yeah. certainly you could do it, but... Uh, it just I wouldn't would, sound right. I mean... It would just be, uh, yeah. Can you imagine, can you imagine the, the, the Charlie Watt sound in Rush? Come on, that'd be, that'd be kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you got my radio engineer's paddles on uh, natural science, permanent waves. So there you, you go. go. <laughs> um, I do want to take up on that paddle thing for a se for a second. You know, you go back to the records and you hear Judas Priest where they had cutlery and they, 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 they had to create the sounds. Now we don't really do that. We go, oh, I need a sound like this. You click a button, no, click on a... Um, how creative and how, how difficult sometimes was it to get those sounds? I... Uh... Not that difficult. I mean, if you you have to be able to come up with the sound in your head first, right, and decide what it is you need, and then you just go out and do it. And yeah, you know, I, I still do that. If I need a sound, I'll uh, unless it's uh, an F one, you know, jet that needs to be uh, for real because it's seen in a shot. Then mm -hmm. obviously, you know, you as you say, you press the button and you get what you get. But I mean, if you're creating something from scratch, you you literally have to do that, like Foley. You know, that's, that's right. what it is. Really. Well, that's basically you're almost like painting a picture in reality. Yeah, of course. So you're still very much in favor of getting that sort of natural sound and not using the technology. I mean, that that's a fair thing well, to say. I mean, I use the technology all the time, but as far as <clears throat> pressing buttons and just calling up samples, no. That's not mm -hmm. my thing. I just don't, I, I have never worked that. I mean, I have used samples obviously over the years, but uh, it's not something that I gravitate towards, uh, you know, in order to create something. 
Although, having said that, I have used uh, Superior Drummer and done some pretty convincing programming that See, Terry, I knew you were guilty. I knew you weren't as old school as you play it off as. Well, when I was saying that, I was thinking, well, hang on a second. I I did do it. But, I mean, I've cut a couple of records where we had a limited budget and I didn't have a studio access at the time I was making records. And so I I cut the drums myself with a superior drummer. So I, I want to follow up on on the use of technology because now we're we're into the pitch correction and the auto-tune. And, you know, a lot of the, the older producers will say, well, back in the day we did it this way. But back in the day was also a pain in the ass of having to cut tape and glue stuff together. So where are you in terms of the technology? Do you like sort of the old way of really having the band in there and a mistake's a mistake? And if the vocal's a little bit whatever, there's a perfection in the imperfection? Or are you like, man, this new technology is a godsend. I don't have to deal with any of this nonsense anymore. Where, where are you in terms of technology? I think the technology is amazing. Okay. And I love it. And I use it all the time. And um, I have to confess, I'm mixing in the box. Wow. Mm. I didn't think I would ever admit, <laughs> especially on a show like this. But um, yeah, and I'm, but I'm getting great results. It's not mm. compromising the work that I'm doing. Oh, see, I was going to say Luddite or, pro- or progressive. And so obviously you're definitely a progressive. Uh, talk well, talk about doing- Digitally, I've been mixing digitally now ever since Moving Pictures. And mm. I've only mixed one album to an analog piece of tape in the last 30, was, was it 40 years? Wow. So even like when you were mixing, you know, Moving Pictures on, you know, the 48 tracks, it must have been an SSL at uh, Morin Heights at the time. It was, yeah. 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 So you're doing that, you know, you got the incredible SSL sound. Was it still important to have all the outboard gear? I mean, you know, the the, harm, the harmonizers were just coming out and stuff and... Well, yeah, you know, I mean, we used hardware back in those days. Now we're using a lot of software, mm-hmm. but uh, doing the same kind of things, really, you know, like using the harmonizer um, and, you know, pitch shifting. And Where would you utilize those in the track? I mean, one story I love is that Mutt Lang apparently used the uh, the 910 to... to drop the pitch of the snare on back in black to like give it some depth in the mix. And I was like, well, people were in, like they were innovating even back then to try and create oh, some yeah. inorganic sounds. And Absolutely. Yeah. We were adding to things back then and, and like vocal sorting out vocals, you could use a harmonizer to correct vocals, mm-hmm. but it was very painstaking and because you had to do it note by note. So it was. It took a long time. Whereas now you can just throw on a pitch corrector and spit and it out the other end, and it sounds pretty darn good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what was one of your favorite pieces of outboard gear to use at the time? Um, well, uh, even Tide made a, a delay line, and I forget what it was called, but uh, I know we had a lot of fun with that. We actually got one right at the beginning of doing twenty one twelve. And I I didn't have one at the studio. We rented it, but that was a big part of twenty one twelve. That's a great thing. Wow. Um, hmm. uh, one of my friends is 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 a producer named Steve Thompson, and uh, he worked, of course, with Michael Barbiero, and they've done uh, Tesla Mechanical Resonance and Injustice for All, and so on and so forth. But they worked with you, or, or they're credited on the same album as you, Cutting Crew's Broadcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Which gave us "I Just Died in Your Arms" tonight. A a 
dare I say, iconic song. I mean, you, everybody knows it. Come on, oh, Mitch, yeah. sing it for him. Just sing it for him. Oh, I can't sing, but <laughs> but it's such an icon. And, and I've actually interviewed uh, the band uh, about the song. But so let me just ask you, are, were you working with Steve and Michael? Or was it one of these where one team came in and then another team had to be brought in later? And if so, how do you sort of divide and decide? And ultimately, you got the single. You got the song. Yeah, I was, um, it was one of those situations where they tried to record, the, just starting the recording of the album, three times. And I, mm. I was number three. Wow. So I inherited some of the things that uh, Thompson Barbiero had done. And also, um, I, rude of me, but I forget the fellow's name who was the second producer. I have it here. John Jansen. Yeah, that's it. John Jansen. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that he did were inherited. Right. And then we started again, but we used some of those ideas. And in on Died in Your Arms, some of the tracks we we used, which had been recorded. Yeah. That yeah. iconic key, that iconic keyboard intro, was that your yeah. idea? No. No. Mm -hmm. it yes, it was. Shh, shh. We don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but I, you know, I did the rest of the record. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun to do. And uh, we, we had a great time making that record. Yeah, listen, Nick, Nick's a great guy here. We didn't, oh, I did yeah. an interview with Nick and he's, he's, he's just, uh, he's brilliant. Um, Just yeah. before I want to take up on another thing you mentioned, you mentioned the Toronto studio. Uh, back then there was also Nimbus 9 with Jack Richardson and Bob Ezrin. Was that all part of the same thing or were you two in co competition and you're like, we have Rush and we have Alice Cooper. How, how was that? Was it two two competing things or? Well, I mean, we were in competition with each other to a right. certain degree, but I mean, I wouldn't, we didn't really sort of deal with it that way. Right. I had clients and artists who wanted to work at my studio or our studio and, um, and Bob and Jack had people that wanted to work there and they were producing more right. stuff. So, you know, they had more of, it was more of a production studio. Mine was more of a, um, a recording studio for everybody. Mm. What's the, what's the difference there though? Well, people would hire the studio with me as engineer or Peter Houston, who right. worked with me for a number of years and different engineers that came through our place. Um, and they'd hire the studio with an engineer and then they come in with a producer right. and they make a record mm. or, or cut a track or whatever. Yeah. Whereas in, in Bob and Jack's situation, they were producing quite a lot of stuff. I mean, even back then, Bob was producing Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And, uh, Jack was obviously producing the Guess Who and, you know, and it was all bringing in stuff that they were working on. So it was a slightly different situation for them. Hmm. It was interesting, though, that that sort of Toronto was the epicenter of the 70s. And then when we get to the 80s, it becomes Vancouver and Bob Rock and, and Bruce yeah. and, and Jim Valance. Yeah. It's, hey, Canada has a great contribution to to making great music. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask you that. Yeah, go ahead. No, as I was saying, it, it's, it's incredible. I think per capita, um, the the percentage of success coming out of Canada is pretty damned high. It, it is. Well, yeah. so let me just take up on that. Why is it so high though with the international artists? I mean, we yes, we have Brian Adams and Celine Dion and Anne Murray, but 
why don't we have more bands that like why isn't helix or honeymoon suite or gowan why aren't they super mega stars i mean we have all the technology and the producers and the infrastructure yeah, well, i mean but you mentioned three artists that were were huge back in the 70s right so you know they're obviously uh 40 or 50 years old now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're not going to be running around. Although Larry's playing in sticks and yeah. doing a great job, I have to say. But um, mm -hmm. I think back back in the day, the problem was that, uh, well, not the problem, but one of the problems was that uh, the, the companies were American-owned. Right. Uh, so a lot of the directives which came down from head office um, didn't allow for some of these bands to really show their true colors. Very mm -hmm. disappointing. I mean, yeah. you, you, and the fact that you should bring that up. I mean, Larry Gowan's records were amazing. They should have been worldwide hits, but they were somehow suppressed. Well, I'll tell you this. this. This is, I had a conversation with Larry about this or Lawrence, and he said, Mitch, I was sandboxed. The, the record company sandboxed me. They said that you're a Canadian artist. We will promote you in Canada, but we're not spending a dime in London. We're not spending a dime in L.A. You are going to be a Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver guy. And that's it. That's your sandbox. There you go. That, that sort of bears out what I'm saying. Yeah. And and I've, I've heard that from other bands, too. Honeymoon Sweden. And it's just oh, yeah. like, wow, it's 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 terrible. Um. I want to ask you about the Terry Brown sound, because when we talk about Mutt Lang, we, we point to Pyromania and Hysteria and Back in Black and Foreigner 4. And when we talk Bob Ezrin, we talk, you know, Welcome to My Nightmare and Kiss Destroyer and Pink Floyd The Wall. What is sort of your sound? And, and is there a Terry Brown sound? And how influential were you to Rush? And do you have that sort of same stamp that Mutt does on a record or that Bob did on a record? Well, uh, we're different producers for some. Of course, of course. I mean, Bob's a very accomplished arranger and piano player, mm -hmm. and, and he's got you know serious chops that I don't have. Right. Um, my my strengths came from uh, from an engineering st standpoint originally, mm -hmm. and um, so I think I do have a bit of a stamp on the stuff that I do but uh, not in the same way. I tend to work with artists who have very sort of definitive sounds and direction. And then my job, I always felt, was to bring that out in those artists. And I so, think I did an okay job with quite a few of them. Well, you certainly did. With, so if I hired you, let's say I'm putting together a band and I hire Terry Brown to produce... What can I expect? What What is that like that first day? Where Do you come in and say, you're going to do this, you're going to do that? Or do you say, Mitch, show up with your 10 songs and we'll go from... Like, how do, what is your process? Uh, a lot, there's an awful lot of uh, background stuff that goes on right. prior to that day in the studio. I mean, <clears throat> I would listen to all the material, mm -hmm. decide on what tunes, um, obviously with you, right. um, which w would be part of this album or, you know, Obviously, that's even changing these days, but we'll talk about an album and we'd figure out what tunes we're going to do. Then we'd start arranging them and, you know, how are we going to approach these tunes? You know, maybe this tune works great the way it is. Maybe tune two doesn't work very well, but we like the song. So how are we going to approach the, the arrangement? 
Right. Um, then we decide, you know, are you a band or are you an individual artist? Should we put a band together, you know, and who would that be? Who would we right. want as our prime players? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if it's a band, you know, we've got to bring all the, the best guys. Right. right. By the way, I'm hiring Steve Lukather because you, you don't get better than that. I'm just <laughs> true. Well, Okay, well, Terry, so, and uh, Leland Sklar. Uh, I'm starting off with uh, Leland Sklar and, and Steve Lukather. You don't, you don't well, beat that. Pretty good start. <laughs> pretty good start. Yeah. Pretty decent. Well, well, I, I got a question now. So it's funny he's talked about arrangement. I mean, you're credited as arrangement on a lot of the Rush records. I mean, specifically, you know, you look at moving pictures, and there's so much stuff going on in those songs. Are you sitting there and like, you know, they bring a song like YYZ in, for example, and they got that big bridge section with the keyboards. And it's I think that's my favorite breakdown, like of a keyboard section, like on any record. Now, are you sitting there and saying to them, OK, we need a keyboard bridge right here? Like, like no. how do you how do, what does that mean when you arrange the song? <clears throat> well, arranging is I mean, arranging can be arranging from scratch um, or you can be arranging things once you've got a basic template Mm -hmm. and that that keyboard idea was already there but it need you know you you fine-tune it you know you fine-tune the sounds and the dynamics you know there's a lot of little details in arranging that aren't just um chord changes yeah well you know when you think classically arrangement you know you're writing all you're writing out all the charts for every violin note and every piccolo note Whereas on the rock on the rock record, I mean, do you tell Neil like, okay, right there on the third beat of uh, bar four, you need to do like a little China hit or something, or like, are you helping arrange it that well, way? With, you, you wouldn't do that with Neil because he'd already have it in there. I might ask him to take one out, <laughs> but I certainly wouldn't. No. Right, right. But no, so you're not sitting there and saying, okay, Alex, you start with the with the limelight riff, and then Neil, okay. Uh, fourth bar and you're going to come in with with the drum fills and then the song's going to kick it like are you are you is that part of the songwriting process or is that arrangement those are arrangements yeah that's the arrangement process and the songwriting is basically melody and lyric okay and 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 changes so so had you not been producing limelight or tom sawyer could probably sound completely different than they sound right now oh for sure absolutely Wow, okay. great songs. Um, and, and I'm, I'm and by the way, I, I, Spirit of the Radio is the greatest Rush song ever. I'll just throw that in there. Uh, <laughs> but before uh, before we let you go, I have this question: um, You work with the band for ten years, and they eventually get to Grace under pressure, and they choose not to work with you. Do you at that time are are you upset, or do you like you know what? Good because you 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 probably need a little renouveau, a little freshness. It, it doesn't hurt. Talk to me about that period. Is it one of disappointment or one of like, no, we've done what we could do. It's smart to go get some other air. Well, it, it was disappointing in some respects, but of course. in other respects, it was, uh, I think, a little bit of a relief, really, because I wasn't really sure where the band was going um, in, in when we were doing Signals. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 there were things that I was not objecting to, but I was questioning. And so, yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. Bittersweet. And, and Mitch, you're wrong. Um, Subdivisions is the best Rush song. Just throwing that out there. Spirit, <laughs> Spirit of the Radio. Can't you can't beat Spirit of the Radio? I can air drum that entire song perfectly. <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah. 
The problem is there were too many good songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so so condition to be in. Once you're not working with Rush and you have to start go working with other artists, do you change as a producer and start bringing in new thoughts and new new ideas, or do you get these new artists in and go, "Hey, this is what we did with Rush. It worked with them." So, like, how did you develop after that? Because Rush obviously changed. You mm -hmm. must have changed as well. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't. I don't think I changed that much. I, I had a, a way of working and a way I like to work. Right. And uh, I continued <clears throat> to do that, but with different artists. You know, I still wanted to get the best out of artists that I could in terms of performance and choosing the right songs for their records and, uh, you know, and replacing members of bands that weren't satisfactory and adding outside musicians on situations where we, you know, needed some embellishments. Mm -hmm. So don't think I changed that much. I got a question for you. I mean, uh, your relationship with Ray Daniels over the years, of course, he went on to work with Van Halen in the 90s. Was there any talks of you ever potentially working with Van Halen at some point? No. Damn. <laughs> Never. Nope. That's that's too bad. That could have. Would you have wanted to had, had you been asked? I mean, well, it never really crossed my mind at that point. I mean, I was busy doing a whole bunch of other things and, you know, and things were important to me so mm -hmm. I, oh sorry about that <laughs> i like that it's a halloween theme the twilight zone <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i never it never even crossed my mind oh, that's uh, well, okay, after, i mean i worked with rush a long time prior so for me to get involved with van halen just seemed like a non-starter Mm. Wow, it could have been cool. So, just to go back to the to the to the the beginning question, you went from flautist to progressive to death metal to whatever. Is producing just producing, or do you prefer a certain genre, or just just sort of tie it all together? How we went from a flautist to a death metal band? Well, I should point out that I didn't produce Mo, Mo Kaufman. Well, you I worked am. with him. I worked with him on a lot of records, but Doug Riley was the, the right. producer on those records, my partner. And um, so I love recording all kinds of bands. I mean, I've ever since I started my career, I, you know, I've, I've recorded rock, I've recorded blues, <laughs> and recorded, um, you know, jazz records. So I've, I, I had that experience of recording all kinds of different music and relating to different players and being able to record them properly. Thank, thank goodness. So, you know, from flute to heavy metal didn't really, uh, you know, didn't seem to me to such a big jump. Well, I and, think as an engineer, you just want to record really good sounds. Yeah, exactly. And I'd like to I like producing really good records. <laughs> yeah. Like so, working with good people, capturing good sounds. I mean, that's, that's, that's the job. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So and looking back, you know, now looking back 40 years later, Moving Picture celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Do you look back on that record and is there anything that you would change about it? No, I don't think I would. I mean, it's it's 40 years old and it still holds up. So yep. I don't I don't think I'd want to go back and try and change anything. You know what I would do? I would put Spirit of the Radio on it and make it a better record. 
Followed by <laughs> subdivisions. Followed by subdivisions. Yeah, and Tom exactly. Sawyer. They just get get everything on there. No. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Sounds yeah. like a best of. <laughs> Basically, you know. <laughs> it is. Well, Terry, yeah. this was uh this was absolutely incredible to chat with you today. Uh just total legend and just yeah. wow, so many stories <laughs> and uh I'm sure there's so much and geez, Mitch, who, who's that barking at you? Is that your wife? Come on now. Don't have sort that cough out. <laughs> well terry uh this is so great 40 years of rush moving pictures and of course rest in peace neil and uh signals will be celebrating its anniversary um next year so we'll have to do this again and talk all about that record okay then the deal <laughs> thank you so much and sorry for that interruption my uh my daughter came into the room and the dogs went uh, barking after her but <laughs> all good See all you right mean. Thank you, sir. A great right. pleasure and a great honor to, to speak to somebody who gave Canada such great music over the years. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Terry. We'll chat soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. See you later. Bye.